Welcome to the latest in our Health Disparities podcast series from the Movement is Life Caucus, working for health equity across race, ethnicity, gender, and zip code. Today, we are shining a light on two very successful community interventions that are working at the grassroots level to improve health overall and reduce disparities. Hi, I'm Dr. Mary O'Connor, Chair of Movement is Life. I'm also the Chief Medical Officer with Voya Health, a healthcare startup on a mission to empower humanity to lead their healthiest life. Prior to co-founding Voya Health, my career was in academic medicine as Professor of Orthopedic Surgery at Mayo Clinic and at Yale School of Medicine. Today, we have an incredible panel of four experts who I'm going to invite to introduce themselves. First, Marissa McKeever is Director of Government and Community Affairs at Sibley Memorial Hospital in Washington, D.C., a part of Johns Hopkins Medicine. Welcome, Marissa. Tell us a bit about yourself and your responsibilities. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me here. My name is Marissa McKeever. I'm the Director of Government and Community Affairs for Sibley Memorial Hospital, Johns Hopkins Medicine. As director of our government and community affairs, I manage our legislative and regulatory agenda in DC, as well as managing our community investment strategy. So that means a lot of things. I've been here for about six years now, and it's been exciting to work with a team that is focused on advancing our community health strategies, our community engagement, and really rebranding who we are across communities in DC. That's just fantastic. Next, we'll go to Dr. Veronica Vela, who's one of the members of the team, uh, currently the Director of Community Health Designs Plus Innovation at Sibley Memorial Hospital. Dr. Vela, tell us a bit about yourself and your role. Thank you so much for having me. Um, So at Sibley, my role is twofold. I work, number one, to run Ward Infinity, which is a social innovation program that invests in change agents who are working to improve the health of their community. Um, It's a six-month accelerator-type program where we allow them to bring their ideas and dreams and give them seed funding and training to make them come alive. The second um, part of my job is helping build capacity at safety net clinics and um, health centers within Washington, DC. So right now we have a really unique partnership with Unity Healthcare, which is the largest federally qualified health center in the city. We're helping them look at how patients and healthcare teams experience telemedicine care, particularly during the pandemic, and then among senior patients who may have uh, digital divide issues. And so we do that work not only to help shine a light on the challenges that their healthcare system is having, but also to help bring to the forefront the challenges that patients in vulnerable communities have with accessing new healthcare services. Veronica, thank you. That was fabulous. Dr. Yashika Watkins is an Associate Professor of Health Policy and Administration in the Health Science Department at Chicago State University and a longstanding member of the Movement is Life Caucus Steering Committee. Welcome, Yashika. Uh, You've been on these podcasts in the past, but please tell our audience a little bit about yourself. Hi, and thank you for having me. So I'm Yashika Watkins. Um, I've been a part of Movement This Life now for nine years. I was just thinking about that the other day. And I started um, Movement This Life um, when Operation Change, the the community-based program or arm of 
movement in its life was um, initiated. Uh, Operation Change is a grassroots movement, to, and it uses um, women in the community, um, African-American and Latina women experiencing osteoarthritis, empowering them to become their own change agents or catalysts of change. We've been very successful um, since 2012, and we started in Chicago, and we are now in five cities. So I look forward to talking uh, later about our successes. And, and I'm excited to have you share those with the audience. And finally, a warm welcome to author, historian, and diversity expert Stephen Ragsdale, who is also associate faculty with Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and a longstanding friend of the Movement is Life Caucus. Welcome, Stephen. Always good to see you. Tell the audience a bit about yourself. Thank you, Doctor, uh, for in, uh, inviting us all. I'm not going to belabor the point. I tell folks that I'm a, a, a hospital administrator in recovery. I am. I am currently uh, consulting. I'm a historian, as you uh, as you noted. Uh, but I have a special focus in history. I focus on the uh, social systems dynamic that have occurred in medicine over time, uh, and that draws me to current day projects which is extraordinarily exciting to me uh, as we move towards a pathway of mitigating uh, the potential adverse effects of health disparities. So thank you for inviting me. Thank you, Stephen. This is an incredible panel. We have a lot to talk about. Uh, there is some phenomenal work that is happening in Anacostia, Southeast DC, as a result of the work of the Sibley Hospital Innovation Hub. This work is the community-led Ward Infinity Initiative, and it's exactly the kind of initiative we love to feature in our annual Movement is Life Caucus. Um, Marissa, could you give us a quick history of Ward Infinity and the philosophy of human-centered design that's so integral to its success? Sure, happy to do that. As I stated previously, I've been with Johns Hopkins and Sibley Hospital for about six years, and as an institution, Sibley Memorial Hospital has been integrated with the Johns Hopkins Medicine System for about 10 years now. We've been on this journey of transitioning from a small community hospital to that really serves a specific geographic location in DC and also Maryland that is from a geographic perspective on the other side of town from Southeast DC. And so in transitioning from being a small community hospital to being a hospital that provides care for all residents across DC and is a hospital that engages with all communities across DC, we've been on this journey to rebrand who we are, to build new relationships, to build new strategic partnerships and a new direction for us as a healthcare institution, but also as an anchor institution. And what that has meant is us going into communities that we have traditionally excluded, excluded in, in a number of ways, some in, um, and a lot of an unintentional exclusion, but exclusion nonetheless. And so as part of our approach to developing those relationships and new partnerships with a, uh, underserved communities in, in D.C., we started with a listening tour. We wanted to go out and actually have conversations to understand and hear from residents these are residents in Ward 7 and Ward 8 in Southeast DC, and really ask them about their community experience, their health experience, and understand their needs, their hopes, and desires 
What are they looking for from institutions like Sibley and Johns Hopkins? What are they looking for from the broader ecosystem in DC? And so we started this journey in 2017 and we heard a lot from residents. A lot of it in conversations, Dr. O'Connor, that you have had through this podcast, a lot of what we already know, what was so um, important for Sibley as we listened to community is that it gave us some intentionality behind how we might invest more in communities, um, particularly medically underserved communities and historically marginalized um, neighborhoods. So through that process of hosting this listening tour where we had over 100 one-on-one conversations with residents, we came back internally and we took an, an approach which Veronica can dig more into, um, an approach called human-centered design methodology, which we have been deploying through our Sibley Innovation Hub. Um, we took that approach and married it with what we had heard from community that they wanted to be a part of the solutions a part of the process and a part of change for Ward 7 and 8. And that's where we created Ward Infinity, which is essentially a partnership between us as a healthcare system and residents who are from Ward 7 and 8 to partner together, use human-centered design to develop solutions around the social determinants of health. Um, and in the past nine months, we've now hired on and recruited the amazing Dr. Veronica Bella, who is keeping this program to the next level. And so I'd love for Veronica to get more into the human-centered design methodology that we deploy through the program and the importance of that community-centered approach um, toward infinity. Well, that is just a perfect uh, segue into Dr. Vela. Uh, but And Dr. Vela, I would like you for our listeners to give them just a little bit more background on Ward 7 and 8. You know, can you paint a, more of a picture for them of, of what those areas are like. Yes, absolutely happy to do that. So Ward 7 and 8 um, in Washington, D.C., one of the first things that is interesting about them, it is there, so if you know Washington, D.C., it's made up of eight different wards. Um, Sibley Memorial Hospital is located in Ward 3, which is the most northwest quadrant of the city. Ward 7 and 8 are in the very most southeast um, portions of the city. Ward seven and eight are actually geographically separated from the main body of the District of Columbia by the Anacostia River. This geographic separation is not only, you know, a spatial se separation, but there is an economic, um, there is a power separation between communities that 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 exist in an area that we call east of the river relative to the other part. So these communities have been underinvested in for many years. Um, when we look at the community, the residents who live there spend about 50% of their income on housing. Um, the unemployment rate is at 20% and upwards to 30% in certain neighborhoods. The income that they're making is an eighth less than the income in some of the more affluent neighborhoods of Washington, D.C. The infant mortality rate is three times higher there. A quarter of the children have asthma. Um, and there are only three grocery stores that service 160,000 people. When we compare, you know, what the other parts of the city, I will tell you that there are wards in, you know, west of the Anacostia River, if you will, where they there are 
10, 11, 12 grocery stores for about 60 to 80,000 people. So you can just see the food disparity, like literally people in Ward 7 and 8 are starving for nutritious food. And that is just, let's just talk about food. The disparities exist across all the other social determinants of health when we're talking about transportation, when we're talking about education. Um, and so, you know, generally the communities east of the river and Ward 7 and 8, um, they are not only underinvested in, but they're also going to be facing more challenges as we move um, towards uh, the need to adapt to climate change. So there was a recent study that was done by the government that found that communities in Ward 7 and 8 are more likely to experience flooding and particularly with some of the really important infrastructure like housing, um, where their medical centers are. And so, you know, as we can see, we can expect that these disparities, if we don't intervene now, that they will continue to grow. Stephen, give us a little bit of your perspective about the historical uh, impact of this geographic kind of separation or isolation of Ward 7 and 8? We have uh, popular notions of history around Washington, D.C., but we really don't understand Washington, D.C. from a racial context. The first uh, debates in Congress moving to Washington were, you know, in the late 1700s, and they were public health debates about, you know, moving the capital to wars uh, in the area that was was a slave district. They thought it was popular belief that when you live near slaves, that it, you know that you that bad for your public health. I mean, and so it's not any mystery why one of the first um, policy uh, agenda items is to take an emerging population and to geographically separate them as a public health initiative. Right. I mean, so like Ward 7 and 8 uh, is actually the remnant of escaped slave colony. And it was just for a lot of political and geographic reasons. And I think for, you know, from what I ascertained, even from the African-American perspective, it was their own isolated community. But as you can imagine, when you are geographically separated by a body of water from the you know, main body politic, the remnants of that history continue to evolve and to uh, devastate uh, that community. And so that's where you see kind of like these cultural habits take form that are systematized, right? You know, that it's not just one actor. It right. is our policy agenda of, you know, looking over, well, we have to have a policy for over here, and then we have to have a policy for those people. Right. I mean, and so that's the short story of Washington, D.C.'s history is was geographic separation of, you know, folks who, who were had originally escaped from slave from slavery or were escaping during the Civil War or um, or a population of people who were newly free. You know, so it's a historically African-American neighborhood. And, uh, a lot of folks don't know that Frederick Douglass lived over there. Right, I mean, so like this is by all practical purposes, this was DC's uh, black remedy, uh, if you will. 
and um, and healthcare has never really reconciled that remedy. And so one of the really interesting constructs around what Sibley was doing was they literally wanted to kind of like fly into a, a, a hurricane, if you will, right? They really wanted to kind of fly into the face of the storm and understand like, okay, how do, is it that we not only, you know, do better work, but how can we reverse historical trends through power sharing arrangements, through development of initiatives that are community-based, you know, uh, Sibley was solving problems from the back seats, if you will, instead of you know, uh, instead of putting their thumbprint on the, uh, uh, on what these initiatives look like and how it was shaped, and they really allowed kind of like the power sharing arrangement to kind of penetrate. I mean, and that I thought was really one of the first instrumental pieces of moving the ball forward and shaping and reshaping trust and having a different conversation. I mean, different is not different as in like the last 50 years. I'm talking about different as in probably like the last 150 years. You know, so. <laughs> yeah. You know, so let's so. take, let's take that thread and go back to the human centered design that Marissa mentioned mm-hmm. and and have um, Dr. Vella and Marissa comment, like you did something fundamentally different with this, with this initiative. Mm-hmm. And so you described human-centered design. Tell us more about that. Well, we did something fundamentally different as a direct reaction to what we heard in our listening tour with residents from Ward 7 and Ward 8. And what we heard, I mean, Stephen just gave an amazing description of the history of D.C. But as you look at D.C. today, we are we've been in the middle of an economic boom that this gentrification also creates displacement. And in D.C., when you look at Washingtonians, people who are born and born and raised here, we're talking about black communities who are being pushed out and they're being pushed out. But these are individuals that we learned heard from. And these individuals told us, we want a seat at the table. We want to be a part of the change that is happening in D.C. The, the change is here. The change is coming. There's, there's, no, there's, there's no doubt about that. So how do we also be at the table as we develop solutions around what is next for Ward 7 or Ward 8? And so as we came back internally, we had already been deploying this human-centered design methodology within Sibley, which is a process where you put the end user at the center of how you develop a product or a service or a solution and ask the end user, how does this impact you? What, how do you want to receive X product or service? And so we had been deploying this piece, this methodology as part of how we deliver care, how we assess um, um, operations on our campus, whether that might be the patient as the end user or a provider as the end user. Through Ward Infinity, community residents become the end user. Um, And the product or solutions or services that we are designing are around the social determinants of health. So as Veronica stated earlier, we focused on food access. We have focused on affordable housing. We have focused on health literacy, nutrition literacy, um, small business sustainability. These are important elements of how do we keep Black communities in D.C. grounded, whole, and create equity across the spectrum. Um, So I'm going to let Veronica dig into uh, the actual details around human-centered design and the importance of 
of systems and particularly healthcare systems investing in more of these sorts of inclusive community engagement methodologies. Excellent. I don't even know that I need to be on the podcast because you all, you guys got it. This is fantastic. Dr. Vela, tell us some more. So human-centered design is a process by which we work to understand the need, values, and belief systems of people that we're hoping to serve. Um, Because oftentimes, if you think about um, any kind of service, but let's talk about healthcare systems, right? So like if somebody's coming to us for care, if we are delivering in a care and prioritizing services that are misaligned with a patient's belief system, then what we're delivering is going to be incongruent with what the person is willing to receive, okay? Um, If we're giving something to them that is prioritizing something that they don't value, again, you're not going to be able to make a connection with the patient that where they can then take ownership over their well-being and themselves. And I think all too often, you know, we have number one, over-medicalized health and caring for people. And then we've also come from a legacy of the provider and the physician being all-knowing. When the person that understands what their how their body is responding, who, who knows that the best is the patient. And there is no way that any provider, a provider can look at a thousand vital signs, but will never understand the experience of that person in their own body, and not only that, understand the context in which they live in. So I can give someone a million pieces of advice, but if that does not compute with their context or their worldview, then it is a waste of resources. And so human-centered design is a process to really understand those needs, those values, those belief systems, so that we're creating things that resonate with the people that we're serving. And so when we're thinking about how do we address these social determinants of health, It really needs to be community-led because, again, we can be an outsider coming in and saying, oh, you need new houses or you need this or you need that, when really they know best what it is that they need and they're they're the best archaeologists of their own needs. And so we need to allow them to have that role instead of coming in with the resources and the grand ideas that are misaligned with what the community values. And then from that understanding, we then can create. But when we don't have that understanding, we're creating something and spending time and energy on something that may be the wrong thing. So you've done so much work uh, identifying these ideas from the community proper and then supporting them to be actually realized. So. So share some of your favorite um, activities or stories and successes with this. Stephen. Uh, well, one of, my, one of my most favorite is not what I call the usual suspects. Like we've had folks in housing. We've had folks to address um, uh, the food deserts. But one of my most favorite groups is actually one of uh, the groups that we had in our first year. It's called Playback Theater. And they came in with this idea. This is an improv theater group. And uh, a lot of folks don't know that, like, what, I guess uh, 25%, a good portion of health disparities are related to communication, some big C or little C communications issues. And these guys would come in and do improv around the hurt that has been uh, 
you know, that has been absorbed by the community and they, they would do a vignette and then they, they would have discussions around how we resolve that hurt. I mean, and so it wasn't kind of like this, uh, you know, awful profit venture. It was actually a theater group who was unpacking pain, community-based trauma in ways that uh, the medical model would have never, you know, or at least in my years in the medical model, that's not, you know, that was not our framing, you know? And so like, you know, going kind of like thinking outside of the box, really thinking outside of the frame about like how to break open really difficult uh, uh, um, problems like uh, sexually transmitted disease, violence in the community, uh, um, uh, just a whole host of uh, youth issues. I mean, I mean, and so when you kind of see this exercise, you don't really understand like how special it is. And it's not a for-profit venture. You know, this is not something that they make money doing, but it's so inventive and, you know, and, and allows for folks from the professional side and the community side to kind of like engage you know, in a conversation around like these small vignettes that they might, they might put on two or three a night, you know, and I mean, and it's really, really, really special. I think that was one of the most surprising things to me. Wow. Outstanding. I'd love to add to what Stephen said, because not only was their solution so original and so compelling, once they, you know, they came with this idea to, you know, to create this playback theater where, you know, members of the audience are sharing their their traumas and challenge life challenges and health issues. And then the theater group is reflecting it back by acting it. So it's this exchange between the two. Now, when they went through the program, they were doing these, but they weren't necessarily health focused and they weren't necessarily at the volume. So once they kind of went through this human-centered design process to figure out how to tweak it with the community so that it would resonate more with the community. The number of performances increased um, in the next year by 500%. And so you can see how this problem-solving methodology allowed them to come with an idea and figure out how do I do it and how do I grow it and make it more impactful. Um, not only have they been able to do that, but since the pandemic, they've actually transitioned into diversity and inclusion work and started this playback theater and are using it in concerts between conversations with the community and corporations. Um, so I think this year has been a really interesting year with lots of um, you know, challenges with George Floyd's murder and other situations that have come up. And so there has been a need for this dialogue in this healthy space. And playback theater has been a process and a method for having those conversation and bringing unlikely groups together. And I, I just want to follow up for a minute on this. So it's, it's a space where people can have those conversations. Do those conversations then generate actionable items for implementation? I mean, take our listeners, follow, follow the thread for me a little bit more for our listeners so they understand what happens after the playback theater event. So one of the more interesting ones that I sit in on, again, they do this in a variety of spaces, with, uh, was with a bunch of high school students and the DCDOH, 
right? I mean, and and uh, and um, essentially, it was about community-based violence and community-based trauma. Well, um, in that space, uh, I think the way the violence. I mean, these guys have a really interesting way of performing, you know, what they're hearing literally for the first time. And it's a, it's a lot of improv. But one of the things that they make you acutely aware of is what the what they are, are emoting, what the story presents. Right. I mean, what it did was it really allowed for DCDOH to kind of dive in and to kind of like dissect those uh, those issues in a way that they had never heard before. Right. You know, because it was, you know, it was kind of like they were translating the story for DCDOH, right, for this community. You know, and there were mental health professionals in the space uh, and they were fascinated. You know, they, they would say this is not, you know, they were not aware that this kind of venue and this kind of space and this kind of activity will produce this kind of like result with not only not with sustainable outcomes, but a tangible outcome that you could do something with. That's fascinating. That's uh, amazing. I want to pull Dr. Watkins into the conversation about Operation Change and how really engaging with the community and, and understanding what will resonate with those individuals is so critical. Yushika, would you like to comment? So just to give a little background on Operation Change, um, it, um, it was created to address um, um, disparities around osteoarthritis, as I mentioned earlier. Studies have shown that African-American uh, women and Latino women have a higher suffer um, um, and have a higher prevalence of knee osteoarthritis. And in addition to that, they have um, a higher prevalence of um, activity limit limitations as a result. So Operation Change was created to address those disparities. Um, Operation Change, and you know, in, in listening to this podcast, is very similar to War Infinity. Uh, we aren't using a, a human-centered design approach, but we are using um, this community-based participatory uh, approach for our program. Um, Operation Change was uh, originally um, um, implemented as a research study, and it has since morphed into a program. So we are using this. See uh, community-based participatory approach for the program. And in doing that, we have the community members um, or the participants of the program be equal partners. So they are giving their expertise, their lived experience as members of that community, as um, uh, women that are suffering from NEOA and, and other um, chronic diseases. And they, um, because of that, they are helping us in making the decisions. Um, around the, the curriculum, um, um, the curriculum topics, the curriculum, curriculum content. Um, they've also helped in even um, um, guiding us on the type of speakers we should have for the program. The program, um, as I mentioned earlier, was initially implemented in 2012. So it's been going on now for nine years. We implemented initially in Chicago. We're now in five other cities. We have uh, three programs um, that are African-American in urban um, centers, Chicago, Steel, St. Louis, um, and um, Mount Vernon outside of New York City. We have a rural health program in Hazard, Kentucky. And um, this one is unique in that we have included um, um, mostly white women 
um, because we saw the need. Um, the data shows the need for addressing disparities for white women. It's just not a minority issue, but it's also an issue just for women in general of, of any race and ethnicity. And then our last program is um, our Latino program in San Diego. Um, but uh, Operation Change has been successful in a number of ways. Um, from a um, programmatic standpoint, when you look at just, just uh, participant outcomes, um, participants have reported a decrease in knee pain. Um, they um, reported um, significant decreases in depressive symptoms. And we all know that as you move more, you're, you're more likely to feel better mentally. Um, so um, that has been um, um, a positive result for the program. We've also seen a decrease in physical functioning limitations, participants reporting more energy and fatigue. But one of the, I feel one of the, um, outside of these um, um, outcome measurements for participants, I feel like one of the biggest successes is we have empowered the ladies to become catalysts of change. Um, in in the program, so they they rely on each other. They've created this bond because they have this shared um, experience of knee arthritis, and they've taken that and now they're trying to mobilize their community to move more. So it just hasn't stayed inside of the program. It has it has um, um, moved outside of the program into the community. So to me, that's one of the greatest success stories of Operation Change. I sense a lot of similarity in terms of Operation Change and the Ward Infinity Initiative in terms of taking those activities and then them being magnified and expanded in the community. Marissa, Veronica, can you comment on that? I hear the same thing, those similarities, that, that is a thread through Operation Change and through Ward Infinity. And I think that's the beauty of using approaches to engaging with community that keeps community as part of the, the process, the partnership, and then also the solution. Um, through human-centered design, and I, I've been calling Ward Infinity our community-centered design um, process, our innovators who work with us, they are also using human-centered design as they test and formulate their solutions. And so when you do that, when you are working and partnering with residents in communities that you're actually trying to serve, you are developing solutions that you know will be sustainable, that you know will have impact, and that you know will be received well from communities. And so that creates a snowball effect. So whether we're talking about operation change or one of the solutions that have come out of Word Infinity related to um, healing and hope or nutrition literacy or food access or small business sustainability, we know that these solutions will work because they were tested with the communities who were, who were going to be receiving these services and products. Um, and they, they, are, they are being tested with on a peer-to-peer -peer level. Individuals who are from these communities, live in these communities and, and know the issues, the problems, et cetera. And so I think that creates a huge snowball factor as you start to invest more in these community-based, community-driven and community-led um, methodologies. Stephen, chime in. Yeah, so one of the things that's really important, I mean, that's a diametrically uh, opposite of the way medicine has traditionally been done and community-based health programming, right? We typically, for time of memorial, for more than a century, have gone into these communities and told them what's best. 
Right. And so get, kind of like getting the community first off, you know, um, to articulate, you know, and when I say articulate, it wasn't that they didn't know what they wanted, but to have the trust in us to say what it, you know, uh, what would work best for them, you know, was a tall climb because of, because of our history, you know, right. because of our collective history and medicine. So I really wanted to kind of call that out. The genius in this is literally being able to kind of step across the aisle and say, you know what, I understand that, you know, it, it, we have to feel a little sorry for the history that um, um, that has come before us in this in health in uh, hospital and healthcare space and be okay with that. Right. You know, and so that was, you know, that was the genius, I think, in what it was that we did. We really put, you know, our history in front of us and said, you know what, how do we create uh, movement in the opposite direction of, you know, of things that were done intentionally to disenfranchise these communities early on in medicine? I just want to make a a follow up comment to what Stephen said. It just makes me think of kind of the stages of change model, the trans theoretical model. Those types of approaches really, um, if you think about the six stages of change, the last one we say in public health, um, people usually stay in the maintenance phase. They don't reach termination. Um, So this idea of maintenance or sustainability, you're only going to achieve that if you have the community members as, as, um, as equal partners. So I think this approach just supports this idea of sustainability beyond um, the academics running the program, beyond the researchers, the clinicians, et cetera. So I'm hearing some key themes and, and, and essential requirements. I'm hearing connection, right? Connecting the community with other healthcare organizations to partner together and truly be partners, right? To, to advance healthy change in, in those areas and trust. So I'm, I'm hearing connection and trust. Because if you don't have both of those, you can't achieve what you've done. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at where our healthcare systems, and, and I should say systems generally, where are we collectively failing the populations that we are serving and the populations that we hope to serve? It's the lack of connection and the lack of trust. And how do we get there? Partnering with communities that you want to be engaged with is the way to build that. And you start that with listening. And you start it with listening. Marissa, I have been so um, just impressed with Ward Infinity. Have other health systems or hospitals come to you and said, you know, show us how you've done it. We want to replicate your model. That's interesting. Yes. (laughs) The answer is yes. Folks are are beginning to hear and learn more about what we've been doing we're leading the way in DC. There is no other hospital or healthcare system who is investing in community health design and innovation and using human-centered design as a way to engage with community and um, invest in community-driven solutions. So we are out in front in Washington, DC. And particularly now that Dr. Vela is on the team, there, there are absolutely requests to figure out how are we doing this and how are we going to do more? You know, and if 
what we know internally, it takes a lot. It takes a lot to do this work. The infrastructure has to be developed, but then also the, the commitment to seeing this through. You know, if you want to advance equity, you have to invest in equity. So let's, I just want to explore that uh, just a little bit deeper. Where have the resources come that gave you the seed money to support this? Because someone had to come up with some resources. So we, we at Sibley have a number of grateful donors, um, grateful patients who have become grateful donors. And the initial seed monies for Ward Infinity was through a private donor um, who really was interested in Sibley's newest commitments to advancing health equity in Ward 7 and 8. This was before we even determined what Ward Infinity was, before we had engaged in the listening tour. There was a donor who believed in the purpose behind um, our overall mission. And so once we received that initial seed funding, we were able to launch the Ward Infinity program. And where we are now is we're on a fundraising tour. We are on a roadshow. We're looking, we're, we're calling public and private dollars to the table to help us grow this program and scale it. This program cannot last on seed monies alone. And we absolutely need the public and private investors to come forward and invest in communities in the same way um, that we have shown our commitment to doing so. Yeah, so one of the things that's really interesting, I've been involved in this work for some 25 years. And one of the things that you've find is a lot of programming like this either is partially supported and you don't that really don't get you all the way down the road um, uh, where you need of where you need to be or it is grant funded and you know the program will last as long as the uh, as long as the grant uh, lasts and one of the things that we wanted to be able to do is since these people are you know we wanted to take that concept of let a thousand flowers bloom, right? Toss these flowers over in Southeast. But one of the mechanisms that I think is going to be really important in doing this work is creating a launch pad uh, for these innovations, right? And, you know, so like, so what do you do with an innovation like playback theater, right? That doesn't fit nicely into a for-profit model, right? This is an artistic thing. It, you know, it doesn't really fit in, you know, and so so what do you do with it? Like, how do you get it that kind of, uh, um, how do you get it to a place of fertility where it's doing like, where it's, where it's magnifying good, you know, at a thousand times, right? Where you have like um, a few different playback theater troops. And so, you know, we've, we've thought about calling, we have an advisory council, but we've thought about, you know, expanding that, uh, uh, our lens to get feedback from others who typically either have been uh, innovators in the space, who have been pioneers uh, 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 in, in and around developing uh, health and healthcare in disenfranchised community. Uh, and so we really want to kind of take this to the next level. But the only way I think it really goes to the next level is if we have something that we can do with these groups, with this massive, you know, will and this massive work, right? And we can actually drive some stakes into the ground 
study, you know, study this phenomenon and see how well, it, you know, how well these, you know, variety of assets will do, you know, once they've been rolled out for a period of time. As we draw to a close, I just want to go around and get closing comments from each of you about how your engagement with these programs has personally impacted you. Marissa, let's start with you. So this is absolutely a professional commitment of mine and a personal commitment. And I will say in this last years, we have seen the economic impact um, of the pandemic on black communities. I am continue to be encouraged by the work that our innovators, our alumni are doing to shift and continue to move economic mobility within our communities in DC. So it is inspiring. I'm excited about this work and it gives me energy that we get to come to work every day and focus on a program like Ward Infinity. Fantastic. Dr. Vela, how has this mattered to you? Well, you know, as I've spent my career in healthcare and looking at healthcare transformation and understanding how to improve quality and access and experience of care, one of the things that I've come to realize, as I mentioned earlier, is that we over-medicalize health in the United States. And so I can do, I can spend my entire career looking at improving the healthcare system, but it doesn't necessarily mean that people are going to live healthier lives if we're not looking at the social determinants that are causing them to land in the hospital anyway. And so I think it's really inspiring to have a program that is thinking at health through the social determinants of health to figure out how can we improve vitality and wellness in communities and do so in a way that one is cost-effective, two that is driven based on community needs and desires, and three that is really taking a preventive stance to making the community well. And that to me is very inspiring because we are gonna work till, I'm gonna work till my last day improving healthcare and I know I will never get there. But if I can do something to help somebody prevent, you know, different health conditions or episodes, then I've already solved part of the problem that I was hoping to solve through my other work. So that's what keeps me inspired. Oh, that that that's inspiring me. You all you are all inspiring me, Stephen. The thing that has been most inspiring to me, I mean, I guess I'm the old sage on one of the old sages on the team is that um, it was really, really refreshing to see the institution literally put its foot forward and address history in a way that was. That was meaningful. Uh, often in healthcare, we hide behind that history because it's not pretty. It right. is, you know, let's, you know, it's not, it's not pretty. And the fact that folks, you know, the folks around uh, the Sibley table looked at that and said, you know what, we got this, and and, and began to create something where that didn't look like the ordinary. That did not look like I've been doing community work for a long time. This did not look ordinary, and you know, like the uh, a road less, tra- <laughs> you know, this was a road less traveled. And I am so inspired by the way that it continues to turn out. 
Dr. Watkins, tell us about how Operation Change has impacted you. I'm inspired by Operation Change because I, I have in the back of my mind Shirley Chisholm's quote, if they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. So trying to teach community members how they can be at the table, even if you're sitting on, on the periphery in your folding chair. So that's what keeps me going is, is trying to promote equity and inclusion and impact health disparities. I can only say again how inspired I am by all of you and how grateful I am to all of you for the incredible work that you're doing. I want to, in closing, just thank all of our listeners, ask everyone to be safe, be well, get vaccinated when you qualify, and thank you again for joining us in advancing health equity. Have a nice day.